Welcome to the first episode of our DLT in the Real World podcast series, designed to give you practical details of where, why, and how DLT is really being used across the capital market space today. The podcast is run as a joint initiative between the Value Exchange and ISSA, the International Security Services Association. And over the next year, we're going to be speaking with a range of industry leaders to leverage their very direct, practical experiences in building and using DLT in their real worlds. Today, we're delighted to be able to kick off the series with one of the most active DLT champions in the world at the moment, the DTCC. Jennifer's here to talk us through her very real experience in the DSM private market space. And so thanks very much for joining us, Jennifer. Thank you for having me, Barnaby. So to jump straight in, uh, DSM, is, is there's no shortage of, of visibility around the project, but uh, for anyone that hasn't been watching, maybe we can just jump in with essentially what you're aiming to achieve with the, with the DSM project um, and, and ultimately the DLT's kind of role in that. Yeah, so, you know, at, at a very high level, you know, pro- private markets operate in a very large and complex siloed ecosystem today. And they are comprised of many, many types of participants that support the issuers and the investors across the entire full life cycle of private market securities. So ultimately, our goal here um, with Digital Securities Management Platform is to introduce a industry-wide solution that supports private markets, alternative assets, and can serve both traditional market participants through infrastructure such as cloud and APIs and intuitive user interfaces, as well as support the blockchain agnostic tokenization functionality for those market participants who are prepared to unlock the potential of that technology. So, well, I know we're here today to talk about distributed ledger technology projects. I think it's really important to just to note that that ultimately, because this ecosystem is so large and complex in terms of the various numbers of stakeholders that are, that participate, um, we felt that as we, while we started this as a very DLT focused. Um, initiative, it became very clear to us that there were a number of existing players in the space that have real pain points and challenges that they need solutions today. And not everyone, not all clients are at that same technical capability um, or have that same innovation vision as, as others. And so we wanted to ensure that the offering that we had, most importantly, drove operational efficiency, standardization for the marketplace, but then could be a adopted by the broadest set of market participants. Mm. We've this is like all good DLT podcasts. This is we've gone about two minutes before we use the word ecosystem. So I'm looking forward to talking more about that in a second, actually. But so thank you for running through that. So this is ultimately, as you said, highly fragmented market, um, very manual um, as, as, as well, very paper-based, long issuance cycles, all that kind of stuff. So, so in terms of the actual, as you said, the DSM platform itself, I mean, can you give us a, a quick view in terms of actually what it is, I suppose, in terms of the pilot so far? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say that there are a few core capabilities that the platform um, provides to the to the marketplace. So one of the under the foundation for it all is a stock record, right? A centralized managed stock record that tracks the ownership records 
for the securities that are run through the digital securities management platform. Uh, I'd say the second one that I think is really interesting is this concept of a transaction consent engine. It's a it's used to enforce the transfer restriction rules that issuers in the U.S. can apply to their securities and their cap table. And so I think that's a that's something that across you know anyone you talk to across any of the exemptions in the U.S. that's a that's a big deal, right? There's you know a lot of manual process work around that. And when you consider secondary market trading and wanting it, you know, for those who want to really enable and drive some liquidity in that space, when you have very manual, highly manual processes out of, around validating, you know, whether or not the, the transfer can occur because it needs to be, you know, within X period of time or your, your investor needs to be U.S. based or accredited or whatever that restriction might be. And you have to validate it, that's time and that that time and effort that it takes to do that reduces the ability for that liquidity to really build up. So creating an, a transaction consent engine that enforces, helps to enforce and drive standardization in terms of capturing that rule set and enabling its use across both primary issuance and secondary trading, I think is just incredibly valuable um, for this space. Um, outside of that, I think, you know, ultimately, you know, the goal here is to create um, partners around this platform. Um, our goal was never to be everything to everyone. And we wanted to ensure that we were able to bring partners in to create choice for our clients um, and participants, as well as um, develop the best breed end-to-end um, -end processing. And so that means we envision um, we have direct um, participants and we envision indirect participants. Um, issuers and investors are indirect participants of this platform for us. And so ultimately, um, they're, but they're very key and important players in the space. Um, but issuers, agents for primary issuance, fund administrators, custodians, transfer agents, cap table providers, alternative trading venues, we envision all of those types of market participants to to extract value from DSM. Mm. And that that's really interesting because I think presumably that comes back to your to your point about kind of you know if you if you've got this enormous ecosystem you've got the direct impact piece uh, as, as stage one and then as you said everyone else deriving value from that presumably that's where this different levels of technology readiness comes in, that ultimately you've kind of got the, I suppose, the kind of more active users and then the people who are kind of, I suppose, more passive beneficiaries or receivers of the, of the central ledger information. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, if, you, if we were to take a step back and just think about how private markets have gained so much momentum over the last decade, right? I mean, there, there's um, some really interesting reports that are out there um, now that talk about the growth in private markets. You know, we have seen, um, a, you know, we could firms continue to raise massive amounts of capital. Mm. Um, you know, unicorns are, the number of unicorns in the private market space today are, is the highest it's ever been. And so that because companies are staying private longer, that capital formation is happening outside of the public markets where your traditional investors, you know, were used to seeing that potential upside. 
And so now, how do you how do you make these markets more accessible to that investor base, such that they can also, you know, you know, reap the rewards, so to speak, of of those that capital formation period? And so, you know, we're not the only ones to have seen this evolution. If you look around just the traditional financial institution space, you know, tier one U.S. banks. Um, are active now in private markets across multiple businesses. They have they're establishing secondary market trading desks. They are enabling access to private markets for their private bank and wealth management clients, and they're making strategic investments in private market trading venues as well. Um, likewise, you have some of the large asset managers, sovereign wealth funds, that are increasing um, their late stage and growth equity investing investing activity. And you also have hedge funds that are rapidly entering the space. These are all your more traditional financial institutions that are looking for solutions to help them enter this space and do so right off the bat with a low operational and tech footprint. And what does that mean? That typically means they're going to look for solutions that allow them to use things they're most familiar with, right? The the, the adoption curve and the, the ramp up of diving straight into blockchain takes time. And you know, some of these firms see the opportunity now and they want to they want to take advantage of that. And yeah, and, and, I mean, so there's two fascinating parts to that. One is presumably the growth that you're talking about is in, in this kind of market, uh, coming from a very paper-based, very kind of low STP background. Presumably, it's it's a bit of a poison chalice in terms of you run that much volume through the through the machine through the industry, if you like, that it necessitates the the, the benefits that you're talking about. Particularly at the at top level, you obviously got transactional, but the, I, I assume the compliance element of, as you said, the transaction kind of authorization piece must be huge in terms of, you know, if you're running, you know, 10x, 50x the number of transactions through your machine um, as a as an issuer, then basically you need um, you need this kind of technology in order to be able to ramp up. If not, then basically you're just faxing and running more and more spreadsheets than you could ever imagine. Yeah, and I, I wish I had I wish I had some some credible numbers of what that actually meant today, mm. right? Mm. But ultimately, I think we we feel the pain in our conversations with the industry as we're as we're moving our development forward around DSM. You know, we hear from them. You know, just as they are as they are establishing their operations in private markets, and or if they have already established them. You know the you know easing some of that burden and taking away the manual risk around the transactions is is huge. Um, and one of the other capabilities I hadn't mentioned on DSM was settlement. Right, we're going to enable settlement. It's optional um, for those who, for those who want to leverage settlement through DSM. But today, settlement can take weeks um, to to occur. And there's many reasons for that. It's not just technological. You know, there are certain rules that issuers have, some issuers um, um, enforce that require board approval for certain transactions to occur and so or transfers to occur of their securities. So 
So ultimately, some of those things you're never going to be able to necessarily take away and, and, and improve from a technology standpoint, but everything else in between, you can. If you can create a tool that enables an alert that goes to your issuer or your issuer's agent to say, this requires your board approval and your clock starts now, and that mean, you know, you, and you, you know, set a time frame around your settlement, that's vastly um, improved over someone, an investor that's just waiting at the mercy of, you know, just an email or something to tell them when they might, when they might actually get their security or the, or um, cash. So I think it's really, there's a number of, of um, benefits here that, that various participants are really looking forward to, you know, most, most of it is that that automation right that we're introducing the standardization around the security data and the and the transfer restriction rules um, that's that's been noted by our participants um, or our potential participants as highly valuable i think attaching a unique identifier to the securities and private markets it's just not something that's done on a on a consistent basis to date so that alone is also something that people got very excited about and then something we haven't really dove into yet either that centralized source of stock record ownership which you know pending regulatory approval could provide uh, at the good control location for us private market securities that also drives a tremendous amount of um, or helps reduce the technology footprint and also the operational complexity of these transactions mm-hmm. so you got i mean yeah, so you've got vastly accelerated, as you said, processes around settlement, which, as you said, every every hour kind of thing adds to the liquidity of the market, which which has an exponential effect. And then if you can do that from a compliance perspective, a compliant perspective, that's one of the things that I think the, the hidden benefits of DLT consistently, the compliance CDD kind of element, however you frame it, consistently comes back as one of the hidden benefits that people don't talk about as much. But exactly as you're saying, it's it's a massive kicker in terms of volume growth accompanied by decent risk management, um, yeah. which is ultimately rules engines, really. Yeah, yeah that's 100% right. Yeah, I haven't talked too much just yet about the blockchain component itself. And I do think there's a couple important things to mention there. You know, when we started to think about this concept back in 2019, and as we validated it with the industry in 2020, you know, one of the things that was front and center was some of the challenges that some of the existing players who were trying to launch some tokenized securities offerings and or solutions to the marketplace, what they were facing. And I think, you know, with any new, really new technology, there's always challenges. And when we looked at it, we, you know, you just talked about, you know, the benefits here of what blockchain can bring. And I, and we're supporters, supporters of that. We believe that there's a lot of value here in the right, in the right use case, right? And, and if, as long as you can demonstrate that value creation, you can eventually drive that adoption. But the challenge is here, you've got, you know, highly regulated instruments that, and, you know, when, when you think about, Firms that were trying to use something like public blockchain, how do you how do you start to drive momentum and build confidence in that technology um, in a regulated manner? And that was the other value that we that we saw in the way that we were approaching the digital securities management platform was that 
you know, we definitely want to meet the needs of our of the existing market today, and we want to deliver solutions that help institutionalize the the the, solu- the solution for clients. But ultimately, you know, there we want to also facilitate this blockchain ecosystem, if you will, and help it you know flourish. But that has to happen at the pace that the industry is ready. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that what we've done here is created a solution that allows DTCC, the industry regulators, to start to to see and develop confidence in even something like Ethereum public blockchain with the right mechanisms in place. Um, And I think the way that we have structured it and designed it, um, you know, it allows the industry to, you know, to, to continue their interests and, and demand in those techno- in the technology itself, um, but allows that tokenized representation on the blockchain enabled through our book entry plus model, which mm. I think is really unique. Um, mm. And I'm pretty excited to see how the uptake in that take, um, evolves. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our DLT in the Real World podcast series and that it's making the practicalities of blockchain adoption really nice and clear for you. This series is just part of the work that ISRA and the Value Exchange are doing to give you clear and actionable information around how and where DLT is happening around the capital market space. If you'd like to learn more, you can download the ISRA DLT in the Real World Annual Global Survey from 2021, available at isanet.org or thevx.io, or you just reach out to one of us directly. For me, you know, the API is ultimately is is the bridge between you know the, the long-term benefits and the short-term realization. I guess is that you know ultimately, if the organization can keep its kind of old-world technology uh, and processes and everything like that, but ultimately, as you said, mirror in a more accurate way in the short term. That's that's already a benefit. And then, as you said, building new solutions on top of that connectivity presumably is kind of like the day two that when you really. You get you you make a little bit of inc- efficiency in the short term, and then that just becomes an exponential growth after that yeah. in terms of benefits. And what about on the you know? There's been some commentary around, obviously, on the performance that you've noted um, as you know as you're running more and more transactions through the system. How have you found that? Because it is a new new technology, particularly on the public side. Um, just curious, and and obviously, and how do you see that playing out? So it's, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> when I when we first started working with the prototype and think and looking at public Ethereum blockchain and the team brought up a demo and, and they said, okay, this is where we're gonna mint the mint the security on the on the public Ethereum on 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 uh, mainnet. I'm like, okay. And so we or test it was testnet, but you know, so we we effectively do it and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not understanding why this is better than what we have today in our financial services, right? But but look, I I, I understand there's you know technology evolves so quickly, you know, today. And private markets are very unlike public markets where we're not talking about high throughput at this point, right? We are, you know, the transactions are are, you know, secondary market, the liquidity is low right now, right? The transactions are, you know, are not to where many people would like them to be, but they're definitely not anywhere close to what the public markets generate. And so I think there's a lot of room to grow. And I think the technology will grow with that, right? Ultimately, um, and clients will make the decision. Is public Ethereum the, the blockchain for them? Maybe they 
they, they start there and they think, you know, they may have their reasons for picking public Ethereum and maybe they determine this isn't the one that's really going to get this market moving because, you know, of performance degradation, latency, um, maybe it's even cost, right? Maybe because of if there's too much tra um, volume transaction flow on the on the blockchain, it increases your transaction costs, and clients just aren't don't love that. So I think there's um there's a lot that's still to be determined. Um, I don't personally want to be the the firm that says you can't use this particular blockchain; you have to use this one. I like being agnostic and letting the clients decide what's actually best for them and for their um, investors or clients themselves. So um, ultimately, our goal will be to ensure that the latency between us and the integration between us and the blockchain is, is sound, um, is secure, and as efficient as it possibly can be. And that's where, you know, that's ultimately what our focus is going to be. Yeah. And presumably every major institution you're speaking to as well is working out what their own blockchain strategy is as well. So as you said, you have to be kind of open architecture to a degree because ultimately Goldman's whoever will turn around and say, right, okay, well, this is in order for us to be able to realize the benefits in our own shop, we need you to be able to run on this. And so therefore interoperability minimum or, 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 or using their blockchain makes, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I, presumably though, I mean, I, cause the other thing is you've obviously you've started with the hardest and it's going to kind of, kind of come through in terms of the use of the private, uh, private blockchains later on. But I mean, do you, from an institutional perspective, um, and do you see a particular pull in any di in, in any direction at the moment? Because I'm assuming from an Insta-ready perspective, you know, they're, they're, they're the people who I can imagine more than the wealth management community would say, okay, hang on, we've got some issues around this. Yeah, um, not yet, right? I think there's we're just still seeing very little trans transactions occurring on the blockchain period. And right. a lot of that has to do because of the regulatory challenges and 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 things of that nature. So, you know, I think I think we're gonna know a lot more once we're live and right. and then we start to see kind of what evolves and what kind of pushback that Ethereum blockchain might get or not um, versus a private blockchain or maybe another public permission blockchain or some variation thereof. I think, um, you know, that's that's really, and I hate to say it's the chicken before the egg, but the reality yeah. is yeah. there just isn't a good solution right now for them. And so firms are reluctant to do too much you know, and and cross a line that is going to cost them down the road. So I think you know, until we start to really see that um, flow happening um, and hear from the clients once something is live and ready and available, it's going to be hard to answer. It's going to be yeah. hard to answer. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fascinating. And so obviously, the you know, the major question for 2022 is where how this plays out. So, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, getting API, the APIs out the door. Um, you mentioned the good control location piece as well, which should be, I mean, that presumably is when when kind of phase one of, of just standardization and simplification kicks into removal of duplication and really ripping ripping the heart out of, uh, of the costs of the industry at the moment. How else do you see 2022 playing out? So um, I'm pretty excited about exploring not only you know, additional asset types or exemption types that we could bring into the platform, but I'm really thinking about how do we now connect our two worlds, right? How do we connect the private market space to the public market space? And what opportunities mm -hmm. are there for us along those lines to really drive efficiencies? 
unicorns are great examples of firms that could benefit from, you know, a link of, you know, and an operational, an operational link between the private space and the public market. So, um, I, you know, I'm pretty excited about just exploring some of those possibilities with the industry and, and others um, to understand what that, what that could look like. If you think about just the registration process, right, yeah. the amount of documentation and the information um, that they all prepare during the private markets, you know, when they're building cap tables and raising capital there, um, it's very much like what they have to do at the IPO stage. And so how do we just how do we create links that we're that we're helping that process along and reducing some of the paperwork, reducing some of the overhead there, make it easier for firms perhaps to get to public markets one day. Right. Excellent. So we've already fixed the pub, the private markets. Uh, that's job done. So now we move on. It's always like you should be running a second project in the public markets. Maybe you should. DTCC should think about that. Perhaps. <laughs> um, no. Look. Thank you so much for running through that. I mean, it, it's super clear that ultimately, you know, that the the immediate benefits are very, as I said, very tangible. I think in terms of, you know, the way I understand it, you know, the automation of current processes, the acceleration of liquidity, the compliance benefits, but then. Once, once the good control location piece kicks in, then as I said, that really rips the rips the duplication out of the industry and really kicks everything into, into I think, more of the theoretical benefits that people have been building cases around DLT for years. So thank you so much for running through that. Particularly, I think it's great to talk about where you are, as I said, right here, right now, and how this plays out for 2022. So thanks for sharing with that. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this DLT in the Real World podcast. Stay tuned for next month's discussion when we speak with SDX about the realization of their plans for a fully digitized marketplace happening right here, right now. To make sure you don't miss an episode, you can either subscribe to this podcast or follow the Value Exchange on LinkedIn. And we'll see you next month.